everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. So, hey everybody, Wayne Dorband and Stephanie sitting across from me over that way, and Mark, who's not going to be able to put his webcam on. He's actually got a little bit of a signal issue. We lost him for a second there. He's back. I'm going to not do a whole lot of, of upfront here. You are at the Economic Action Team event. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Mark, let him go in case we lose signal again. He, he lost it before, but got back on in about two or three minutes. So, please, if we lose him, I'll kind of pick up some slack and just talk for a little bit, and then um, I'm sure he'll get back on. Mark, and you know that if you needed to, you could just call in with your phone. Stephanie gave you that, but this way is way better because then you Correct. go off with the presentation. All right, it's all yours, man. Take it away, buddy. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Thank you for, uh, for being here tonight. As you guys know, we're going through uh, the curriculum on forest ecology. And uh, past few weeks, we've been dealing with disturbance and uh, spent quite a bit of time on wind and quite a bit of time on fire. And as you know, I am a, uh, a nature enthusiast, and so I like to be very actively involved in what's going on. And uh, Jen and I just uh, are returning right now a, uh, an event that's been sponsored by the Stewardship Network based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's a citizen-based um, restoration ecology network, and uh, they've been working on non-point source pollution mitigation, uh, field monitoring of uh, pollutants, etc. And so what they did is they had an event where uh, farmers who participated in their program could come and, and sail on a schooner on the western end of Lake to see the effects of you know what they're doing and why why. Uh, uh, managing water, sediments, and non-point source pollution in the uplands is so important. So the first day was Monday. We set sail on the, uh, the schooner. It was two hours late. So we milled about the uh, Great Lakes, um, uh, the Great Lakes uh, Museum for a while, like two hours. And then um, what is going on with my screen? Does everybody else see like my, cal my computer, my uh, calculator and calendar? I don't know why that's on the screen, but anyways, the uh, Mark, we uh, ship was two hours late. And, yes. Oh, now we are. Yeah, I don't know why that's there. We weren't before. <laughs> but, how do I how do I get rid of that? I don't know. That's weird. I, I, I don't know how that's we don't happen. we don't need to see that all the time. Then I'm scrolling through that. Anyways, so on the can I get I can just put them over there, right? Yeah, they're get them out of the way. I'm getting trying to get them out of the way. So anyways, we went out, and the, uh, the skipper had to call the railroad bridge to have them move it out of the way. Uh, and so instead of going out into the bay right away, we, we went upstream in the Maumee River. And then we turned around and got grounded, <laughs> stuck in a sandbar. So our Monday's trip was only about an hour and a half. But then yesterday's trip, uh, we did sail around the western part of the bay, a number of different presentations, one from the former director of uh, one of the uh, main research institutes in the Great Lakes, and uh, we actually took quite a few photographs of these deadly toxic algae blooms that if you were to fall in the, that part of the lake where those blooms are going through, you would most likely uh, 
you know, just barely survived, if you survived at all, severe liver damage and all that kind of stuff. And then we stopped off at Warren Dunes State Park uh, on western, in the western shore of uh, the state of Michigan, where uh, there's a series of sand dunes that you can go from bare sand all the way through the successional process within a 150, 200 yards, end up in old growth, uh, shade tolerant, sugar maple, um, basswood, beech, hemlock forest. And the range of species uh, range from about in the southern part from uh, the species that you can find in Georgia, Louisiana, all the way up to Minnesota and Maine. It's an amazing uh, diversity crossover spot. And so we're on our way back from that. But as a, as a group, we've been going through disturbance. And tonight, what I'm going to try to do is uh, do a lot more tying together what we do as land managers with the actual ecology uh, of a place and uh, understanding a little bit more about disturbance and a little bit more about what I do as disturbance and how can I imitate uh, natural disturbances for particular effects. And now my slides don't want to, there we go, how come my down button doesn't work? Alright, I'm going to this is bizarre. Everybody, we've decided Mark's computer is possessed. So, um, <laughs> all right. I got my start, start in, in permanent agriculture by reading J. Russell Smith. I didn't read it in 1926, but that's when he wrote it. Uh, he suggested growing our annual feeds in the upper story and pasture in a lower story on all hill ground that was uh, susceptible to erosion. I think that's a great idea. It's as brilliant today as it was in 1926. So that's where I got started in this permanent agriculture stuff. And then I bumped into this permature, uh, permanent agriculture by Bill Mollison. And the sentence in white is what I'm all about and what a colonomics action team is all about. Is Our goal is to design systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable. Because if we do that, we've done just about everything right. And then we have a, we have a beautiful ecological system that we're living in on a healthy green planet clean air, clean water, uh, and we're paying our bills. Now, now we have time to develop, uh, hire more um, peaceful and creative social structures. Uh, David Holmgren uh, took a lot of what was in the Permaculture Designer's Manual and put it into a series of principles. And uh, most permaculturists are familiar with permaculture principles that start with observe nature, imitate nature systems, and interact with the system that you create. All the rest follow from that. And until we've figured out this part where we're going to observe nature, imitate it, and interact with it, uh, I don't think that we really need to go further because if, if we don't get the first one right, how can you get the second and third and so on? So in order to ob observe and interact, we have to know the difference between an observation and a concept. And I know some people get frustrated with me for bringing this up over and over and over and over again, but this is so seriously significant. <clears throat> an observation something that you see here, taste, touch, smell, measure with instruments, derive through testing. And if I observe a phenomena and describe on a piece of paper or whatever how to observe this phenomena, and I give it to you in Michigan or you down in Georgia or you over in New Zealand, you can follow the same process and you will observe the same phenomena. You may call it by different names, but you'll observe the same thing. So that's observation. A concept is merely an intellectual construct that we lay upon reality now, supposedly, it's supposed to help us understand reality, but it doesn't always work that way. And I've used a number of different examples of uh, how to tell the difference, 
or at least show you the difference between observation and concept. And I'm going to do this with the next slide. I want everybody to look at this nice bunch of ripe Cavendish bananas. These are a stage six banana. They are, you know, the, the perfect ripe bananas are blemish free. There's no, you know, insect damage, all that kind of stuff. We can't see on it. What color are these bananas? And of course, we can't hear your answer, but you're just thinking this in your, in your mind. What color are these bananas? Well, if you said yellow, what you did is you had an intellectual idea of what bananas should look like, and you projected that onto this screen, where this screen has bananas that are in a, uh, uh, a gray tone. It's all black and white photography. So if you said yellow, you're, uh, you were not observing the actual phenomena. You were observing your thoughts. Uh, and look at this banana here, these bananas, and say that they're yellow. That's not true. That's not accurate. Those bananas in this picture are not yellow. Um, anyways, I wrote a book. Buy it. Um, somebody told me they tried to get it on Amazon and they were sold out. So we're going to be going through, we have been going through the forest ecology curriculum. And what that is is a study of all of the interrelated patterns, the processes, the flora and fauna of, of ecosystems that include woody plants, forest ecosystems. And any forest ecosystem is like a discrete unit of land, which might actually be the land that's bounded by your property lines. That is considered a discrete unit of land. And it includes all the plants, animals, microorganisms. <clears throat> so if you think about the uh, levels of complexity that's involved, phenomenally complex systems, um, a computer functions with a series of on and off switches, more or less. And so with two on or off, we can, we can come up with computers and, and um, screens and we can see all kinds of stuff. Now imagine an ecosystem with a hundred different parts interacting perhaps a hundred different ways. There's already what? Somebody do the math for me. Is that a million or ten million? So complex systems, understanding how these complex systems work and working with them in order to achieve certain outcomes. Uh, how these outcomes play out on the ground, if it's in a, uh, within our timeline, uh, with our lifetime timeline, that, that's, that can be observed as that's called succession, this change through time. This particular field, we've seen this before in weeks past, if we were to just leave it alone and do nothing to it, the plants and the animals, the soils, everything on that site will gradually change through time. That's the process of succession. Wherever you live right now, whatever size or scale property that you have from a, a suburban lot to a 4,000 acre ranch in wherever, uh, the process of succession is taking place on that property, whether you know about it or not, whether you actually have anything to do with it or not. So by understanding how the plant and animal communities change through time, we can learn how to steer that to a certain extent. And we can understand what it's going to turn into. Now, an ecological disturbance is any kind of event in time that changes that system. It changes its structure, its physiognomy, its shape. Uh, it may have once upon a time been a bunch of tall trees. Now all of a sudden something happens, there's no trees. Or it may have been a, you know, a bunch of bare black dirt, like a leftover cornfield, and we plant it full of trees. Those both qualify as, as some sort of ecological disturbance because that changes the structure and the shape of the overall system. Uh, a disturbance is anything that changes the species composition. It may be a particular mix of species, maybe devoid of certain species, and extra species are added to it. And then it's function. Everything, once again, from a cornfield to an old growth uh, forest, both of those systems 
uh, function differently. And so a disturbance is anything that happens that causes a current system to change its function and it starts to operate in a different way. And if you're going to be doing a restoration agriculture system, what you'll notice is at first you're, you're working within the current uh, ecological system. And as you get your, the new system set up, <clears throat> it takes a while, it seems, before it kicks in. And then all of a sudden it, it almost takes on a life of its own and it goes in the direction that you started sending it, the, the successional direction that you sent it in. Um, and then it, it functions in a different way. New Forest Farm in southwest Wisconsin functions radically different than it did 20 years ago or even 15 years ago. And that will continue to happen for the, for the rest of its, its life. And understanding uh, what kind of disturbance that we do, uh, how it affects the functioning of that system, how it affects the species composition of that system, that sets up the next wave of succession and the direction that it's going to go in. So we can we can have a reasonable understanding of where our system is going if we understand this dance between disturbance and succession, disturbance and succession. So by understanding what the disturbance does to the system, I just mentioned this, and then how that affects the system, and then what the, the new conditions are that we create, that will that will determine how we interact with the site. By understanding what just happened here, this is supposedly a bark beetle infestation, uh, by understanding what happened, it'll give us an idea of how that affects the current system. Obviously, these trees are going to die. There's going to be a lot more light penetrating to the, to the uh, forest floor. There's going to be a lot of wood available for decomposition or for burning. Uh, and so this system has been changed by this disturbance, and then now we know uh, have an idea of how we can interact with the site. We can interact with the site in a way that um, is of a detriment to the overall site or actually goes in the same direction as these natural plant communities want to go, as in this case is uh, spruce and fir in the uh, Rocky Mountains. <clears throat> so disturbances create new landforms by rearranging the parent material through mudslides, volcanoes, it changes the soil properties by mixing of organic matter layers with mineral soil layers. Uh, it can create new substrates like sand dunes, where Jen and I were today. Loose deposits at the uh, blowing, uh, drifting, uh, wind-blown debris at the toes of glaciers. Uh, debris deposits, in the case of here, this was uh, from flash floods on our farm a week and a half ago that covered this whole section with you know, new uh, gravel and topsoil and all kinds of sticks and debris. Disturbances will change the light and the temperature regime of a site. Uh, it'll, it'll affect the competitiveness of the flora here. It could eradicate the flora that's existing. It may introduce new species to a site. All these different things are, are disturbances. Now, if we understand how nature does it, uh, how it rearranges the parent material, when it rearranges the parent material, what actually happens when nature rearranges those parent material by understanding how natural disturbance works, we can more closely imitate natural disturbance when we interact with our site. Um, disturbance leaves behind biological legacies. All of the green that we see up here are areas of this forest that did not burn. These biological legacies will carry what they call a genetic inertia or a biological inertia. They will be casting seed into these areas. So we know that this particular system right here is going to be driven to a certain extent by new seeds coming from these species. Now if this is your property up here that's all been burned and landslided, uh, you just will know that you'll be having these species blow in or animals will be dragging the seed in. In our case in southwest Wisconsin, we had a uh, 
a hillside about a half a mile away that was 90% black locust. We just knew that over time, somehow black locust seed or roots are going to make it over to our farm. We also were surrounded by a lot of uh, box elder that has, um, they're in the maple family. Uh, the seed looks like an ash seed. It's got a hard seed and a single wing on it. And they float in the breeze. And with their point, they can go right down through uh, a heavy sod and they sprout out in the grass. So we knew that it would be uh, invaded by these box elders. So knowing our biological legacies and understanding how they will affect our site also helps us to steer our own particular site and uh, understand what we want to do or make a decision on what we want to do in order to interact with our property. Disturbance also leaves physical legacies. Uh, this is a classic pit and mound. There's a blow-down tree that falls over. The roots are, are tear up all of the, the rocks here and the gravel. Rain falls and the rocks and gravel starts to fall down. The sun shines on the, on the rocks and the tiny mineral soil particles oxidizes them. Uh, the pit collects organic matter, a little bit of water. Seeds fall on the, on the newly exposed uh, mineral soil and sprout, have a little extra water and mulch to grow in. We understand how these different uh, physical legacies, where they came from and what effects they actually have. We can observe pit and mound structures we know what they do, we know what they're shaped like, we know that they're this combination of organic matter and mineral soil and they leave a, a pit behind it. We can tell that they collect organic matter. We can imitate this in our system. Uh, so when we interact with our system, we may choose to create uh, these sorts of physical legacies that will be there for a long, 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 long time. Now, we talked quite a bit about wind a few weeks ago and wind typically removes more of the overstory. It goes through and it, and it snaps off uh, certain of the trees. Some trees are stronger than others and don't snap off as readily. Some snap at the base, some snap up high, some tear out of the ground like we saw previously right here. Uh, but it typically removes more of the overstory and fire will typically remove more of the understory. Most of the fires that go through forested areas are only low intensity ground fires. They take out a lot of the brush, they burn grasses. Uh, it's only when the understory is connected to the overstory with ladder fuels, and we see some pictures later on, I don't know how many slides forward, uh, is the, a gentle little ground fire able to burn its way up through uh, these smaller trees like this little, uh, this little tree right here in this uh, slide almost acted as a ladder tree and brought the fire right up into the crown. Once it gets up from the crown, of course, fire will take out the crown trees as well, the uh, overstory as well. Here's, here's an example of the understory. Uh, this, this stand right here, this, is, uh, this was a red pine stand. Red pine has light uh, seed that blows in the wind. It requires disturbed soil. It likes mineral, exposed mineral soil in order to sprout. Uh, it's extremely drought tolerant in the uh, Midwest, the South and East. Uh, it's also fairly fire adapted. It will survive many uh, ground fires. Well, it creates a shady site underneath. It's moister in the shade. So then we have some more uh, shade tolerant and some more moisture loving trees that are growing underneath. This one is at, this stand is at a uh, critical stage where ladder fuels could bring the fire up into the crown and torch that out. So if we, if we don't disturb a site, which is what happened here, it's its own kind of disturbance and it sets up the next uh, set of conditions that will affect the next disturbance. If a fire comes through here as the next disturbance, uh, that possibly could be catastrophic to the overstory. 
if we go ahead and we remove the understory, we maintain the overstory, there's more nutrients, more moisture, more light to the, uh, to the trees growing up high, they'll grow faster, they'll put on more straight, uh, clean bowl wood, perhaps it'll expose enough of the forest floor, we can do other activities underneath it. We'll see some slides later on where uh, that was the management choice done with a particular piece of property like this. Um, Human disturbances are still disturbances. What we do to our system, it changes the current site conditions. That qualifies as a, a disturbance. In previous uh, webinars, I showed pictures of some strip mining, and that, that's, a, that's a human disturbance. Uh, we went in, we removed the mountaintops, but left over, left behind, there's like a couple of patches of brush over here, there's some grass over there, some seeds somehow managed you know, to, to be on the side of the road and it was surrounded by other vegetation that will eventually move in and colonize the site. The site may be extremely toxic. It may have been set all the way back to the bare mineral soil, like in the case of a strip mine. Well, this particular site right here, this is, a, uh, this is in Japan. This is a temple that was built around this tree. This is a very special tree. That little plaque describes what it is. I forgot the name of the uh, tree. It has its own personal name. Uh, this tree, it's a ginkgo tree. And this tree was uh, 1,000 meters from ground zero at Hiroshima, Japan, when the atomic bomb went off. It got burned completely clean. That was a massive disturbance. I think uh, no one will disagree with that. A massive disturbance burned completely off, but it was one of the first plants to start sending new buds out, new green, and the tree is still alive today. It so impressed everybody that they built a temple around it and gave it its own name. Now, the food that we grow and the food that we eat was produced somehow. What I'm going to go through is a whole bunch of different slides here, and what I want us to do is just observe the actual phenomena and not interact with these sites with our concepts. I want us to understand that this field right here, this field of corn, if you eat corn chips, high fructose corn syrup, grain-fed meat, or use different industrial ingredients, uh, you know, thickeners, vitamin supplements, those all came from number two dent corn. Number two dent corn across the planet is grown like this. This was once upon a time a prairie or a forest or a savanna that was eradicated in order to disturb the soil to plant annual seeds, which corn is an annual seed of a C4 grass. This is what that diet produces. So eating all these things down here is what creates this kind of disturbance on the planet. This kind of disturbance uh, when done over and over and over again is causing all kinds of problems worldwide. It's this kind of disturbance that's causing Lake Erie to have toxic algae blooms so you can't even swim in the water without a killing it. This is a, a wheat field. Your bread, pasta, cookies, you know, your sugar-coated breakfast whoopee cereals all create this kind of site disturbance on the ground. So a lot of people say, yeah, but you know, being a consumer and making choices about our food really doesn't change things a lot. Well, excuse me. This is where your corn comes from. This is where your wheat comes from, period. Get over it. It's not good or bad or the other thing. I'm just saying this is an observable phenomena. This is real. Uh, and this is not necessarily the ecologically healthiest system that we can create. It's not necessarily the most economically profitable system we can create. And it's definitely not the best for best habitat for human beings. Whoops, I went backwards. Sorry, it's that possessed thing. This was a facility we just went by um, the other day in uh, in southeastern Michigan. This is an ethanol facility, 
and um, this is a, I guess it's a, a auto parts um, facility. But what I wanted to show you is this is the scale of uh, the processing infrastructure for our food crops, for our agriculture. Um, a lot of people want permacultures to respond to stuff like this by running to the suburbs in our homesteads and growing our little quarter acre of fruity and nutsy trees. That is not a solution for human beings planet-wide, although we may be able to grow more uh, food with small-scale, high-intensity uh, backyard agriculture. Currently, right now, billions of people depend on industrially scaled carbohydrates, proteins, and oils, our staple food crops. And we need to be able to produce the same thing at scale for massive amounts of humanity. We have to have 30 loading docks around here in order to have the economies of scale to feed people in the cities. Um, so this, this diet right here is, a, is an ecosystem that will be created by an annual crops vegan. Somebody who says that feeding corn and beans to animals is an ecological crime, I agree with them. Because by feeding corn and beans, annual crops to our animals, we lose 90% uh, of the uh, uh, calories. Those are just used as metabolic heat in the, um, in the process of, of turning grain into cow. Then, of course, all these beans are processed. They go to these big, huge factories. They have these big, huge food distribution warehouses. This, in fact, observable phenomena is the type of ecosystem that would be created by a vegan who eats corn and beans or rice and beans or wheat and beans as their food. I'm just saying to observe this and make a choice. Is this the kind of uh, planet that you want to create with your food choices? Well, this is all the perennial vegan, on the other hand could be buying uh, almonds from California, which is right here. Look at that. You know, thousands of square miles. Go to the Central Valley of California and start buying almonds. Bare black dirt underneath, herbicided clean, uh, laser level smooth, uh, irrigation water pumped in from who knows what part of the Colorado Rockies. Mechanically harvested like this. Um, I actually know people in California whose parents uh, are illegal um, workers in the USA, and that they were born here, and so they fall into this loophole, whereas they don't have a citizenship necessarily in a country at all. This is the kind of agricultural system that creates those problems. And still, all of this is processed in mega factories, um, and it goes into your sugar-coated whoopies on the aisles of the store. I kind of like this better than this, because now we're at least dealing with perennial plants, and at least we're taking a certain amount of carbon out of the air, and probably there's a lot more soil life uh, under the ground here than there is in this situation here, though I, we don't know for sure. And I think that this is possibly a little bit more socially equitable than something like this where one person, or you don't even need a person, you just have a, a satellite GPS controlled machine that plants it, harvests it, sprays the herbicides, etc. Or you can have a, um, a vegan diet grown in a system like this. Here we have actual animals living on the ground in a polyculture system. This is at New Forest Farm. Uh, you don't have to eat animals in order to have animals as part of your agricultural system, as part of your natural restoration system. And there's no place on planet Earth that we know of right now where animals do not live. Biology, uh, uh, zo you know, zoology, animals are an absolute critical component of all ecosystems on this planet even if you're going to, to be a total non-meat eater, 
you you will have animals in your system, so you might as well use these guys as tools for the fertility, pest control, disease control. But we can set up more um, modest scale uh, systems, perhaps that use uh, wind and solar power to run our, our machinery, so we still have some good processing efficiencies, and we can have different social structures um, with people uh, interacting with, with the farm system. So our choices do create a different system. If you're going to not eat animals, pick one. Which direction you want to go? I would hope that you're all going in this successional direction with your food choices. Well, being a bloodthirsty, murderous, uric acid, poison, grain-fed, meat-eating carnivore, well, okay, not really exactly anymore. This is a kind of, of uh, ecological disturbance that is required in order to have grain-fed meat. The industrial annual crops, herbicide, uh, at least in the USA, still they're using a lot of uh, genetically modified organisms. Uh, all this stuff is harvested, transported out to feedlots, uh, mechanically, you know, automated feeding of the animals. Uh, what are the yields of this system? What comes out of this system? Actually, observably, um, out of this system here, we have uh, toxic runoff with. Uh, agricultural chemicals, pesticides, etc. 80% of the phosphates in Lake Erie are contributed by agriculture in Michigan, uh, contributing to these algae blooms in, in Lake Michigan. That's one of the yields of that system, observable measurable yields. Another measurable yield is sediment. The soil is washing off. There were barges and dredges working uh, beside us, dredging out the channel so the ships could actually get through all the silt comes down and it silts up the uh, silts up the, the river so boats can't go through uh, onto Lake Erie. So it's creating more work downstream all along the way. And of course, what are some of the yields of our transportation network? All the CO2 exhaust, etc., uh, oil spills, leaks. Well, a grass-fed carnivore could initiate disturbance that creates sites like this. And perhaps the marketing infrastructure that they choose starts to create social structures like this. And then if we go to a restoration agriculture diet, Restoration agriculture is the imitation of natural ecosystems in structure and function and species composition. Uh, it imitates natural systems. Then we interact with it and we harvest yields from it. Uh, there is no other production method that does this. If you have another production method that actually does imitate natural ecosystems in structure, function, species composition, well then you're doing restoration agriculture because we're accomplishing ecological restoration simultaneously with agricultural production. And what are the yields coming off of this system? You know, cleaner air, cleaner water, beef, uh, pork, chicken, eggs, uh, milk, walnuts, uh, mulberries, and more. And so harvesting our food is an ecological disturbance. When we go in and we enter into our a site and we harvest a yield from that site, whether it's wood, whether it's you know nuts or fruits or berries, or mushrooms, or actually, you know, soil, debris off the forest floor. When we go in and we we harvest from a system, we are affecting its uh, its functioning as a system. Uh, and so we will interact with a disturbance that qualifies as a disturbance, and we we will have the best understanding we possibly can of how that disturbance is going to affect our site. And then we watch and see what our disturbance did on the ground, and learn from that for for next time. And that's how we will move ourselves through the future, uh, interacting with our, uh, our properties. And what we know throughout history, this is a picture I showed a couple of weeks ago in Uganda, 
If you take a forest, this was a high tropical forest, monsoon forest. If you go ahead and you cut it all down, whoops, there goes crazy stuff with my possessed computer. If you cut it all down, burn it all, turn it into charcoal, sell the charcoal in the cities, uh, overgraze with animals, then sell out to large-scale agriculture, you end up with an annual cropping system that depletes the soil, uh, desertifies an area. There's no more humidity coming into the atmosphere from these big tropical forests. Uh, this is becoming drier and drier. The rainy season's coming shorter and shorter, more sporadic, less effective uh, water infiltration. You're, we're creating the desert with this type of agriculture. We know how this works. It's been doing it for 6,000 years. This is not normal in the entire history of the planet. It's not ecologically healthy. Uh, the ecological cycles from the, the nutrient cycle and the, the, the uh, hydrological cycle from you know, creating rain clouds to water infiltrating to streams and channels running down these valleys, everything has been disrupted. This is not even a viable habitat for, for human beings. Maybe mice um, can do all right out here. I imagine they would. Somebody do the math on that. If you've got if one pair of mice uh, can turn into 400 mice in the course of a month and a half, how many mice could you make out of you know, 10 million bushels a week? This system also grows annual grains. This is on New Forest Farm. And it grows dozens of different perennial crops, as well as a mix of livestock. It's home to oodles of wild plants and animals. This is an actual observable phenomenon. We actually can turn a farm that looks like that into something that looks more like this. And there is, observably, more complete, healthy, ecological functioning going on here. Here's an apple orchard. This has a different disturbance regime and different ecological effects. There are different yields from this system. Some of the yields would be you know, herbicide runoff. Uh, they're probably obviously fertilizing this. How much work did it take, you think, to plant all these and put a stake next to every single one of them and tie them to a stake? Uh, there's probably some irrigation tubes either at the surface that looks like a emitter over there. This is just different than uh, this, for example. This is a lot more quote-unquote natural system in that all of the pest and disease cycles are allowed to run their own course in their own particular manner. <clears throat> there's uh, grasses that are allowed to sink deep roots. Uh, of course, we've had water management channels that are on that. There's multiple different yields. It's not just apples. The only food yield you're going to get out of here is apples, whereas out of this system here, there's, uh, there's flowers in the spring, uh, daffodils and irises uh, for cut flowers, and the bees love it for honey. Uh, then there's comfrey for medicinal herbs or animal feed for their accumulating uh, calcium, and I, uh, I think it's potassium. It's providing um, overwintering sites for, uh, for parasitic uh, wasps and so on and grazing animals. The cattle move through here. Hogs can move through here. There's a number of different yields that come off of this site. Maybe not uh, as many apples as that you know, straight and tall orchard where there's only apples coming off of it, but there's multiple different species. Now these two right here, you'll notice, notice how the branches are low to the ground. This was taken before we started grazing cattle in the apples. This one is after we started grazing cattle in the orchard. Part of what we notice, of course, is that we have more light penetration to the ground level. When you have more light penetration, you have fewer fungal diseases happening uh, because uh, sunlight is one of the best um, fungicides that's out there. And you've, breaking, you've broken this little um, uh, scab, especially, cycle where a drip of water will hit a scab spore. 
and just splash up and find a scab, a leaf of an apple tree that keeps splashing up just like a ladder fuel with fire, your different fungus can climb up these uh, ladder fuels and get to the top. Whereas if the cattle graze off the bottom, no more ladder fuels, better light penetration for disinfecting that way, better airflow to get rid of moisture. This is a different system. We've disturbed this with cattle. We got a yield instead of an expense of spraying fungicides or whatever we would use. We now actually get a yield out of the system while accomplishing fungus. This type of hazelnut orchard has a totally different disturbance regime, a different set of inputs and a different set of yields. What are the inputs in this system uh, versus a system that looks like this? This is a Midwestern um, uh, American hybrid hazelnut shrub uh, shrubland. It's quite different than this. This is a European, uh, based on European hazels. This is in Oregon. Uh, herbicide strip underneath trained a shrub is actually trained to act like a small tree whereas here the American hybrids were just letting the shrub stay a shrub adapting the equipment to it this is a different uh, ecological reality on the ground observable measurable over and over I'm not saying which one is better or worse or right or wrong and then there's this one we've got the hazelnut shrubs and we've got the animals right in there with it you can see our hazelnuts up here and notice there are no hazelnuts down here really because these guys love to crunch hazelnuts off the bush, and if they're eating a 30% protein nut with 50% oil, there's plenty of calories to gain with. Here's one way of growing pine. This is a zero-input method of growing pine. We know it's zero because it's in a wilderness, designated wilderness area in the Boundary Waters Canoe area. What are the economic returns to people? What are the food returns to people? There's tourism and then timber eventually, if we were going to harvest it, but it's in a wilderness area, so even that's not there. So the only economic yield here is tourism. Uh, no human uh, contribution to the human food supply, except for people like Jen and I, when we went through, we picked some berries. Um, that's not a real model for agriculture in the U.S., other than that this gives us, or even around the world, it gives us a model of what to imitate. Nature is managing the system. There's a whole bunch of yields in there that wild crafters know all those yields. And this was managed with no cost, no expense whatsoever, uh, just with wind and fire and animal impact and whatever else might uh, come through here. How close to zero inputs can we get with our system while uh, maintaining yields, harvestable yields for human beings? Look how similar these two systems look. This one right here has yields of beef, uh, milk, chicken, eggs, alpaca and sheep meat, and wool from both of those. This once upon a time was a, uh, a pine grove that was undergrown with lots of uh, uh, brushy species, shade tolerant brushy species that were, were potentially going to act as ladder fuels if a fire came through here and destroy the whole system. Uh, instead, the landowner went through and began to remove uh, these understory brush layers burn a bunch, inoculate some into mushrooms, chip a bunch, uh, mill some, the larger ones, into lumber and build small cabins. And eventually with letting the sunlight in, there was more grasses growing underneath. And now they're able to, to yield beef, milk, chicken, eggs, alpaca, meat, and wool. And of course, eventually, uh, pine timber. This is a southern pine situation. Well, here's another pine situation. Uh, pine is basically the only yield. Who wants to go recreating in that. It doesn't really look all that fun. There's not a lot of wildlife growing in there. Hardly any sun penetrating the forest floor. No herbs. Perhaps you can get some mushrooms, but not very many. What are the tourism 
benefits from this. No contribution to the human food supply, very little wildlife. And of course, inputs, you know, planes and trains and automobiles and all that kind of stuff. Uh, highly uh, input-based system for, for what kind of yields? Minimal, minimal yields. Restoration agriculture, we want to imitate nature, natural systems as closely as possible for a low-cost way of producing agricultural crops. We will use disturbance as a way to change the the structure, the function, uh, and the species composition of our site in order to have it stay ecologically healthy, provide us with yields, and because we're talking agriculture here, restoration agriculture, we're focusing quite heavily on food yields for human beings. In order to really you know, know where you want to go, it's a good idea to have some goals in mind. What are your goals? Let's map the, the, the piece of uh, property that we have at our command, whether it's the postage stamp in the city or you know, the five million acres out in northern Canada. Then we develop a set of objectives for the various different areas. What are, what are our objectives in each little region of the farm? Even Wayne's farm, I believe it's only 40 acres. He's got some high hillside, almost mountaintop. And he's got some valley bottom with water. Very different sites from up high to all the way down low. They would, they would require or ask for different types of disturbance regime in each place. We come up with a plan, and then we go ahead and we interact, and then we assess our outcome. We accept feedback. So we start with our goals, and we now interact with our system, and then we take feedback. So we're going to plan, uh, act, seek feedback, and then adjust forever through time. Some of the techniques that are used in, um, in uh, ecosystem management, forest stand management, is, of course, harvest. Timber harvest. Cutting trees is a uh, disturbance on the site. It is something that people have done for as long as people are around, I guess. <clears throat> what we want to do is have an understanding. I'm not going to say that this harvest technique is better than that harvest technique. We want to have an understanding of what the different harvest techniques are and just think through what are some of the ramifications of uh, this particular technique. Clear cutting, of course, has uh, got quite a bit of notoriety because it's uh, visually quite, um, let's just say, spectacular when you see entire mountainsides leveled for miles and miles and miles. It's just an amazing sight to see. Um, what clear cutting does, obviously, is it removes the, an overstory and they also remove the understory. Notice all different diameter trees were moved here. Clear cutting tends to favor earlier successional um, woody plants. Uh, things that sprout back from the roots that are like fire dependent. So this could imitate like a, a big huge burn went through and just burnt everything to a crisp, a crown fire. And what, what sprouts back from the roots are uh, things like aspen, their classic willow, cottonwood, hazelnut oaks, um, silver maples, sugar maples. Uh, a lot of the fire adapted plants sprout back from the roots and they'll be coming up in this particular site here. Well then other trees that would come in are the light seeded ones. So clear cutting tends to favor early successional plants, you know, uh, trees coming back. So if we have our, our system that we've designed, if our system relies on early successional plants, uh, like at New Forest Farm we have a lot of hazelnut and apple and chestnut, all of those sprout from the ground. They are adapted to getting, you know, leveled, completely leveled. We could mow the whole entire farm down next week and it would all sprout back. 
then some other stuff would move in from the outside. But that's an early successional um, strategy to favor early successional plants. Seed tree cutting is when you would leave a few trees behind of a specific variety that will be able to sprout in this clear cut. So it's almost a clear cut, uh, but not quite, because you're going to leave some seed trees behind. One of the fascinating things with seed trees, it, sometimes you'll have a logging crew that gets orders from a forester and says, oh yeah, do a seed tree cut on this area. But they go out and they do a seed tree cut, and it's not a heavy seed year. And so there's not a lot of seed that's cast that year. Well, then the site regenerates a little bit. You'll have all these things sprouting back from the roots. Other seeds come in from the outside. And then the trees that were left behind to cast seed, they don't have a, a, a suitable seed bed to get established in. So it can fail if you're not paying attention to uh, the seed, seed crop that's on the trees at the time and the proper disturbance on the ground. One of the most amazing seed tree cuts that I've ever seen um, was in the Menominee um, Native American Reservation in Wisconsin. They went through and they harvested only on a heavy seed year, and this is for white pine. They left maybe one pine tree per acre, heavily, heavily loaded with seeds. So they cut everything else except for one pine per acre, and then they attached uh, anchor chain, these big, huge, jagged caltrop iron things, like five, six foot high, and they drove back and forth across the whole entire area. And when they got through with it, it was the most amazingly disgusting, horrible mess that you've ever seen. But what they did when they, when they dragged the, uh, the logging chain back and forth across the site is it, it mixed um, root matter, it mixed the slash with the mineral soil and it exposed lots of mineral soil. Well, then the, the big, big pines that had this heavy seed crop, they released their seeds onto bare mineral soil, exactly what white pine wanted for regeneration. They had more uh, pine regenerating on those sites than you'd have, like, flies on a roadkill, an amazing regeneration. So understanding why we're doing this kind of uh, harvest uh, and what our objectives are uh, is, is very important. A shelter wood is, uh, so a seed Go back to seed tree cut, you notice how it's wider spaced apart. A seed tree cut, you're going to favor more sun-loving uh, trees like, for example, pines. Whether you're doing it on the east coast or west coast, uh, it's more on the sunny-loving plants. Well, if you want to uh, favor more of the shade-tolerant ones, you could do a shelter wood so that, that the ground doesn't ever get hot uh, or, or um, baked in the sun. And you may not uh, want to disturb the ground as much uh, for this. So this would, this would favor very fire-tolerant type trees. Uh, once again, the early successional trees with the light seeds like the pines, these can favor more mid-succession and late-successional trees as you're doing this. Now the shelter wood cut, I showed pictures a few weeks ago of uh, what I did in uh, Chestnut area. You know, it was treated with STUN, the Strategic Total Utter Neglect Method, where we planted the chestnuts and mowed between the rows for a few years maybe, and uh, all kinds of other woody plants came in from uh, elm to uh, box elder to uh, black locust, lots of black locust. There was some aspen that, that uh, managed to, to fly into the site. After that uh, grew to a point that the, the uh, black locusts and other trees started to uh, slow down the growth of the chestnuts, I went and I did a removal this spring of the of the non-chestnut plants. So it's kind of like a shelter wood cut, was I went and I removed 
50%, maybe more, of the woody material that was there. I'd let it grow long enough so I had, uh, I had wood, firewood for mushroom log inoculation and so on. And then we drove through with a, with a, a flail chopper and we chipped up all the brush. And because we had, it was just about leaving the early successional phase and the grasses were starting to peter out, as soon as we released, uh, we, we released these chestnuts to grow better, the grasses really exploded, especially with the nitrogen from the black locusts. And then we grazed cattle in there then. So we used a shelter wood cut kind of to imitate a blowdown. We blew down all of the black locusts and elms and box elders, and it favored uh, it favored the, the retention of the chestnuts, of course. The grasses grew like crazy. We had a lot of stumps sprouting from the trees that uh, grow back from the stumps, like black uh, locusts, for example. So we almost imitated a, a blowdown, uh, and we had animals thrown in there. A variation of uh, like a clear cut or a shelter wood cut could be called a diameter cut. Uh, you could say, I'm going to take out all of the trees that are larger than this diameter, regardless of their species, whether they're sun-loving or shade-tolerant. You could do a diameter cut that removes the upper ones. Or you could go in and do a, uh, sometimes it's called the timber stand improvement, where you remove a certain diameter and smaller to favor the crop trees left behind here. This is also similar to what we uh, would have done with uh, the chestnuts. And this is more similar to what a fire would do, it would come through and remove a lot of the lower, brushier understory. Obviously what this didn't do is it didn't burn it and combust this material, uh, whereas on our site we chipped it so at least it will rot and decay into the site. The, the slash and the debris on, on your site whenever you're cutting branches, uh, that's, a, that's an important part of the nutrient cycling on the site because there are minerals that are bound up in there. Uh, all of the energy that's in that wood and all the lignin and cellulose that's important energy for your fungus, and as your fungus metabolizes, they're taking other things out of the air. A lot of what a lot of fungus do is they'll uh, accumulate uh, phosphorus on the site. So the the, the slash rotting in place uh, is actually a very important part of the system. A lot of decay is, is a good thing in the system. Another modification of a shelter wood cut uh, uh, is what's called a coppice and standards. And these are some pictures of a coppice and standards. Coppice and standards, uh, those of you who are familiar with the word coppice, you cut a tree down and it sprouts back from the root. What do we know about trees that sprout back from the root? That's a, a fire adaptation. So in all these pictures here, a human being went through, imitated fire, and removed uh, the woody, the above ground woody portions of this, did whatever they did with it, uh, whether they're making charcoal or building buildings out of it or using it for fuel. Uh, feeding livestock with, with uh, twigs and branches, whatever, uh, then, the, then the trees sprout back. Whoops, don't do that. All right, go back here. Well, then what, what uh, can happen out of a stump sprout, you get these stumps sprouting back like this, you can pick one or two uh, with, uh, with maples and oaks. I'll, I'll start with the whole clump, and through time I'll begin removing one stem out of that clump you know, every two, three, four, five years, usually when it's, um, you know, at a, at a good prime size for firewood or mushroom logs, whatever I'm using it for. And then I leave behind the straightest, uh, the straightest, most vigorous growing sprout, the one that's most securely anchored to the, uh, to the stump, and that's the standard. And so you could have these little sprouts down the bottom and a standard up in the center. Well, you start with this and you remove, maybe you move, uh, you know, this stem, this stem one year, this one the next year, leave this one. They keep getting bigger and bigger as they grow. 
maybe leave this one last or leave that one last or a new sprout comes up. So it's a way to manage a woodlot uh, quite sustainably because when you actually coppice a tree, you keep it in the juvenile life stage and coppiced trees actually, you'll, ex you'll extend their lifestyle, uh, lifetime. If a, a tree would normally live 100 years, if you plant it and leave it alone, it grows, gets old, falls apart, and dies. But if you cut it down before it becomes you know, a senior citizen, it will sprout back as a teenager. If you cut it down before it's a senior citizen, it stays as a teenager. Trees like um, El Castaño de Cento Pavali in Sicily, this 4,000-year-old chestnut tree, that's been coppiced continuously for almost 4,000 years. That's a very, very old chestnut tree. Now, group selection is when you'd go into an area and remove clumps of trees, groups of trees, and this could imitate um, either blowdown or fire. <clears throat> and uh, this is a, a little bit less aggressive of a cut of what I did with the, uh, with the chestnut trees. And also, this is, these pictures are all showing uh, you know, ideas for, for timber harvest prescriptions, and it's uh, intended to be, have taken place in the forest. So this is more from a forester's thinking. As restoration agriculturists, we're, we're actually farming, and so we're going to actually be a little bit more efficient on our land, especially if we've planted the doggone system. So these things will be in rows, and our groups might be in rows. We have a, a row of chestnut, we have a row of oak, we have a row of hazelnut, we have a row of apple, and so we'll go through by a row and remove a strip at a time, a strip cut. That's a group selection. These uh, the smaller openings that we leave from, you know, these uh, shelter woods to group selection and then finally to individual trees, single tree selection, they tend to favor the more shade uh, tolerant trees, the later successional trees in the east, uh, beech and hemlock, um, basswood, that sort of thing, will tend to uh, tolerate and sugar maple, uh, the, uh, the deep dark shade better. When you leave these little pockets, any new plants that get seeded from around here or come up from sprouts or that we plant in there, they're surrounded by shade and the only light for them is to go straight up. So they'll have a tendency to grow straight up faster, quicker. And so if you want uh, to plant trees and favor timber production or at least include timber production uh, as one of your eventual yields, uh, doing a shelter wood cut or a group selection cut will help to get you more straighter, uh, taller stems uh, per unit area. I like the, uh, the straighter, taller stems because there's fewer branches. And if I harvest it at a small diameter, you know, four to six inches or so, I really don't have to do much splitting uh, for firewood. And they're perfect for handling if you're going to be doing mushroom logs. And here's the single tree selection where you would take out one tree at a time. Uh, when interacting with uh, a system, whether it's you know your your planted uh, restoration agriculture system or a, or a forest for for firewood and timber and any kind of um, forest farm products medicinal herbs shade grown um, ornamentals or mushrooms etc. Uh, whenever you're whenever you're doing this, we want to actually take out the worst plants, and leave the best. Instead of uh, being a, a logger who's going to get paid by the volume that he removes, and they'll take out the best and leave the junk behind, we want to continually be taking out the poorest quality trees, the one that don't produce whatever that yield is that we really want. We, have, we pull out the ones that, that don't produce as well, either crooked trees that aren't producing good timber 
or ones that don't produce good nuts in the case of you know nut producing trees or fruit producing trees if we continually remove the poorest genetics we'll have the best genetics left behind and as time goes on we can keep adding new genetics to these little pockets and we have you know a higher quality pool of parents casting seed down into this so we can improve the quality of our stand through time or our, the quality of our orchard through time. Uh, a classic example of uh, single tree selection are old growth forests. The ones that uh, have gotten so moist they don't burn underneath um, and they're you know several hundred years old, lots of uh, mosses, not a lot of grasses, if any grasses underneath. But you notice most old growth forests will be clumps of gigantic trees and then clumps of smaller trees, straight and tall, because the, the smaller trees grew up in an opening and see how light it is back here. Maybe one of the old giants fell down, made the pit mound with the root, crashed down a whole bunch of other big ones with this trunk as it fell. And now all these young plants, all these young trees grow up and they shoot for the light straight up. And so old growth stands are classic uh, single tree selection type systems. And these systems favor the more shade tolerant, moisture loving plants. We already talked about this one last week. We can do a bunch of different things here. What do you want to do? What are your goals? Uh, what are your, your production values? What are your personal values? How much work do you want to do? Do you want to work your buns off all the time? Do you want to have it produce lots of food, lots of income? We have to use our, our thinking capacity to design a system then pick the disturbance type that will get our long-term goals. And we saw this before we come in. Uh, do a lot of chipping. This uses a hydro axe. You can use whatever tool is appropriate for your scale and for your budget. Ground up uh, easily 70 to small plants left behind the larger plants. We imitated pit and mound architecture by using a bulldozer to create swales and berms, then a master line system to spread water from valleys out to the ridges, uh, combined with uh, amphibian ponds here and there. And you can see how this is incorporated. Uh, the uh, uh, mineral soil with organic matter. And this is managing the water flow instead of the water running off the site and not being useful anymore for producing yields. Stays on the site, soaks in, uh, provides you know pest eating amphibian habitat. Uh, seeded with a selection of grasses and then planted with um, saw palmetto as a cash crop. So now after a period of just a few years we're still producing pine just like anybody else in the neighborhood except that instead of just doing herbicide for three or four years with helicopters, uh, we, we go in for the first year and a half or so and hit it heavy to get it under management. We disturb it um, and we uh, plant a certain number of species in the uh, understory that we want. We've got enough light for grass, we've got enough water for grass all over the place, uh, and we have a medicinal herb in a growing market. Another kind of disturbance, of course, is adding species to the site these are new trees being planted, and we, uh, the types of trees going in here, these were mostly hazelnut. There's a lot of uh, Juneberry, serviceberry, which is an early successional shrub fruit. Uh, this this uh, particular planting was mostly nuts and uh, berries and uh, florals for uh, essential oils for florals. This is on New Forest Farm. We planted a similar, similar suite of species, chestnuts on either side here, chestnuts and hazels over here, and we disturbed the site. We have eliminated uh, species in, in this alley in between. We disturb to the bare mineral soil. We get our new species established in between. 
And so lo and behold, all of a sudden we have a cash flow coming from our crop that we're growing in the alley. This is one strategy. A few years later, of course, we have different crops. This is uh, acorn squash grown in the alleys. This is all early successional uh, oak savanna mimic with the hazelnuts and uh, chestnuts and apples and so on. We can switch from an annual crop in the alleys to a perennial crop in the alleys once again to provide cash flow yield while the, the system is maturing. In another 15 years probably these trees, these chestnut trees will just about close canopy and that's about enough time for this asparagus to finally peter out then we'll have a lightly shaded uh, grassy uh, chestnut savanna. This is uh, approaching that already. The animals move in the system um, and help to maintain it, help to add the fertilizer. We're still growing chestnut long term uh, and we're yielding crops short term. So just another uh, look, you can see a lot of uh, shade occurring there. Maybe someday my farm will look like that, we don't know. Maybe. It might not because uh, our production values along the way might say that well we want grass because we want to graze cattle. Or, or uh, here we could, in this picture, we could graze lots of pigs as well. Um, but maybe we want cattle, maybe we'll keep it open uh, with grass underneath. The disturbance that we choose sets the direction of the pathway, and that's all based on our values. What are our goals? Here's, of course, we've seen this using fire and blueberry um, barrens in uh, northeastern Maine. I like this picture up here in the right because what I would do if I had this blueberry barrens here, I'd go in and I'd plant Korean pine all over the place, widely spaced, because we don't want to deter from the cash flow that we're getting from our blueberries. But one of the things I really like about blueberry culture with low bush blueberries is the fact that this is so close, this so closely imitates a natural system. You have uh, you know, bare mineral soil, rocky, rocky soil, hardly any you know, nutrients in that soil. Blueberries are a low-growing shrub that actually will thrive on that site in the acidity that's there, hardly any calcium available. These evergreens, this is mostly a spruce in this particular picture. All the red is, is blueberry. And yet we get a cash flow out of this. We have an immediately usable uh, human food crop. We're using fire to manage it and, and a perennial plant in this particular place. I think it's a beautiful restoration agriculture example. We have different sites that are moister. If we have a, what was once upon a time a fire site, now is undergrown with all these other, oops, go too fast. Uh, these grow uh, underneath in the understory. They've created more shady conditions. That might eventually shift so it's no longer a flammable site. It becomes so moist and humid. We saw the mossy old growth system earlier. Once you're in a, in a, uh, a shade tolerant later successional phase, most of the disturbance at, in a moist site, bottomland site, uh, will be single tree uh, blowdowns. You know, a hurricane comes by or a tornado or some kind of storm or in many cases there's just so much rain falling that the soil gets so soft that the trees just fall over and glurp. Different kind of disturbance would be required on this site, site in order to interact with it. Um, and we had talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago that if this, uh, Engelman spruce, it's one of the, the pioneer spruces that will go out after burns, for example. It'll, it'll grow up and then eventually, without fire as a disturbance, it'll be replaced by Douglas fir, which will eventually be replaced by ponderosa pine. And then eventually, if uh, the pine will get replaced by grasses, that's the other way around if it keeps getting burned too much. And then if, if, if the frequency just decreases, um, you'll start to get 
uh, these, these more shade tolerant, more moisture loving plants underneath it. So to understand what happens in both directions, if you increase the intensity of disturbance and decrease the intensity of disturbance, will give you an understanding of where you're going to steer your site. Um, this is the boreal forest, northern Canada. It's uh, more typical are large blowdowns or uh, larger burns. There's a larger regeneration that takes place. There's a lot fewer species the further north you go. Understand the disturbance regimes of your site. This, I think this is all up in uh, uh, northern uh, Manitoba, the, this particular picture here. And it's mostly wind throw and fire that, that does this disturbance. If you live in a place like this, this is a suitable way to interact with your site and establish, go into these areas, and I'm pointing to my screen instead of using my cursor, establish the species that you want for your productive goals. Here perhaps blueberry, you know, Korean pine, Siberian pine. Uh, allow grasses to grow, graze some animals in there, manage it with some uh, grazing animals uh, and perhaps mowing instead of fire and a chainsaw instead of uh, blowdown. Northern Rockies, look at all these different patches that occur. Once again, blowdowns, larger fires, large insect outbreaks. We have uh, all, all phases of succession going on here from sediments being deposited by beavers, uh, mosses and grasses and lichens and shrubs, uh, then early successional sun-loving. Later on, understory would be uh, more shade-tolerant. We have either a blowdown or a clear-cut patch. Learn the disturbance regime of your site uh, and figure out how to manage your site so it's consistent with the disturbance regime. You can also manage your site so as to protect it from uh, potential threats from somewhere else. And if you are in an area that is fire-prone, you will want to remove ladder fields and you will want to remove and keep the grassy component uh, a little bit lower than it could be. You don't want it to go too dry and tall because um, you don't want a wildfire from somebody else's place coming on your place and destroying your whole, your whole property. So here we are. This is a situation. This is a mixed northern hardwood situation in Maine where 30 years ago I introduced butternuts and hickories to it. So butternuts and hickories are, are fire-tolerant, early successional uh, species in a different zone completely. So they would require one kind of disturbance to help maintain them. Well, I also have... Uh, the sun-loving early successional species of birch and aspen coming in. And I have late successional species of uh, red spruce, moisture-loving uh, red spruce, and um, a lot of sugar maple and beech. So what do you do? Well, what are your goals? What do we want to accomplish on this site? I didn't necessarily intend to plant pasture grasses here. These are grasses that uh, kind of invaded from the road it's basically a jeep road that, that goes up to this particular place. But by planting the right woody species with them, they moved in. Now, do we want to grow birch for saw timber? Birch will require uh, either a clear cut, a blowdown, or, or a fire to wipe it out and start to regenerate. Do we want to favor our spruce component and grow you know, saw timber spruce? Do we want to favor nut production? What we want as goals is what's going to determine how we interact with our site if we imitate the different disturbances that these species would naturally uh, experience, we'll be able to steer the future of the site and, and over time turn this into uh, a very productive uh, food, fuel, medicine, fiber producing system that is almost a natural ecosystem. Well, it is a natural ecosystem, but it's almost you know, naturally maintained. 
So what are some answers to this? What would we do? What would you do to this site right here? Uh, how would you interact with it? And so what I wanted to do tonight was to take a little bit of what we've talked about of disturbance in the past, put it into our agricultural context again. We are going to be doing ecological restoration simultaneous with uh, agricultural production. We will use techniques that imitate nature and, and we will do them not because we read about it in a book and it told us that you have to do this. What we're going to do is we're going to think about what are the goals that we want to accomplish, how does nature do things that will accomplish those goals for us, and let's imitate those in our, in our farming and our forestry practices. So that's it for tonight. Observe your site. Know your biome. It's, it's dominant plant communities. And later on in many future webinars, we'll go into optimizing your site hydrology, mimic the natural systems in your area, uh, learn the past and present disturbance regime, and then steer and guide your system by using strategic disturbances, knowing where they're generally going to go. Uh, these are all our tools at our disposal, and uh, that's my webinar for tonight, and I'm sticking to it. And it was awesome. Um, let's uh, give people a chance to catch their breath and maybe throw a couple of questions in, if you've got a couple of minutes, Mark. So if you guys got to throw them in. Um, that was really powerful, Mark. That was just great. Um, that uh, that non-point source pollution, we'll, you and I have to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, what you, yeah, what we'll, we'll go into a pretty extensive thing on, on all of that because part of what is so simple is just simple buffer strips. Like um, look at this picture right here on the, where I'm doing the cursor. A buffer yeah. strip that wide between you know, corn and beans and, and a riparian zone, a stream or a pond or whatever, it will remove you know, 80 to 90% of all sediment, all above and below ground nutrient that's trying to leak through there. The trees just gobble it right up. So 60 feet of a buffer around these, these uh, uh, riparian zones, well, farmers don't want to do that because that's 60 feet of pr production that they're doing all around their whole entire property, and then they won't get as much of their government subsidy if they do that. Well, they can get a subsidy for buffers, but it's not what you could get is if you were growing a crop there. So either we've got to bring our subsidy regime into the point where it pays farmers a fair price for that, and they want to put it into buffers because it's a better deal, or we just grow things that are economically productive, hazelnuts and walnuts and pecans and so on. Yeah. We can accomplish that ecological restoration. We can clean up the Great Lakes. 80% of the crap in the Great Lakes we can get three years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not seeing any more questions. I think you uh, put in a one, everybody, if you thought that was good tonight. Thank you. For that. That, was, that was awesome. Um, let's just go a second here, see if there's a couple more. Anybody? Good. Thank you. Thanks, Dustin, Sam, Eric. Appreciate it. Steve. Well, I want to thank Mark, as always. This has been great. We are in week 13. Wasn't unlucky. It was a good 13, and we'll... Uh, Move ahead next week. What do you, what's what's on tap next week, Mark? Are you still going to be in disturbance, or what are we going to move to next week? I think I might have lost him. We might have got the perfect timing. Uh oh. Well, he, he was his timing is great. He finished and he's gone. Um, so. Uh, it looks like we've even got something here. Can Mark speak forwards how long? Uh, 
and allowing the observed site before starting to implement his design. Am I here? Yeah, we were. We lost you for a bit. So it one, says one question, which was, how uh, how long did you on your side? Now you're there. You're here. We are. Am I back? Am I back? Yep, you're back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we lost you for a bit. Um, just got one question here, which was, can you speak about on your site? How long did you observe before you yeah, started? Okay, I think. All right, so. So this this is actually this is actually really significant. I heard it. I didn't lose the connection. Oh man, I can hear myself. All right, the, all right. What I said three hundred years because part of the observation is learning how to read, and this is why we're observing nature, and this is why we're going to imitate nature by looking at what's there we can tell the successional pathway of how it got there and so on my site if, if you look at this cursor that tree right there is at least 300 years old I have a 300 year history of what the plant communities were doing on this site so there's 300 years worth of observation just by walking around so by observing your the natural plant communities of your area you know what the site has done for eons into the past so uh, we, we hit the ground running because we did our observation of what actually was here. What were the legacies? If you have redwoods on your site and there's only three or four or five of them, you know that at one point in time this was a redwood site for 5,000 years. That's a lot of observational history in the legacies that's left behind on your site. If you have a lot of pit and mound architecture on your site, you know that once upon a time it was more older growth forest and it was a lot of wind that would have knocked things down. If you have a lot of aspen or perch uh, and a lot of smaller shrubby trees on your site, you know it was possibly a fire-prone site. So by understanding the, the successional pathways and the disturbance regimes of your site, you have hundreds of years, thousands of years worth of observation just by doing what we've done these past few weeks and understanding how did these plants get here in this particular form what function have they been uh, doing for the past 10 years? What is the successional pathway forward from here? Or what are the different successional pathways forward from here? Which one do I want to steer this system in? So I, I observed this site for at least 300 years before doing anything. Super. Well, I don't see any more. Everybody, please go to the Facebook site if you want to put some stuff in. Um, we'll, we'll, make, we'll make sure we get some answers. If you're not in the Facebook site, um, all you need to do is send me an email, and I will invite you. And again, you won't even find it otherwise. It's 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 kind of an interesting system that Facebook uses. It works for us because we really do want to keep it just for this for this team. Um, there's lots of other places we can refer you to. We actually Restoration Agriculture has a, a really cool Facebook site, as I'm sure a lot of you, and and those are open and such. So. Um, I asked before, did, did you have an idea what you're going to talk about this week, next week, Mark, so that uh, people... We're, we're going to, next week, we're going to go back a little bit uh, more into different kinds of disturbances and different kinds of adaptations that plants have to those disturbances and uh -huh. uh, take it forward from there. Awesome. Well, hey, everybody... In case you hadn't figured it out, in case you hadn't figured it out, it's all about disturbance and succession and, the, and managing that dance between them. Yep. Everybody's getting that, I think. 
Well, hey, man, thank you, man, and thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks for everybody helping, Stephanie and Mark and Deb, um, and we will, I hope, see some of you tomorrow night, tomorrow in the day, when uh, we talk about alternative health and the immune system, um, and come back and watch replays, take some notes, and we'll all be together soon. Thanks. I'm going to stop recording now, and hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.